0: This is ACFM. Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Kia Milburn, and I'm joined as usual by my very dear friends Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And Nadia Idle. Hello. And today we are discussing stillness and movement. Okay, let's get into it. What? Wh- why are we discussing stillness and movement? Has it got any relationship to what's going on at the current
1: moment? Well, it always would have. It's interesting partly to think about the nature of the moment that we're in now, historically, in terms of what's changing and what's not changing. I mean, arguably, that is always what the the analysis of the conjuncture, as uh, we like to call it, following Gramsci, involves. The the you know the conjuncture is the name given in certain strands of social, political, cultural theory or analysis just to the the, the convergence of forces and factors that are shaping any given historical moment, and analyzing the conjuncture is always primarily a question of of asking yourself Well, what's changing and what's staying the same from before and in when we were preparing for the show we thought well in some ways what characterizes the feeling of the present is that things are changing in a really bad way it's really rapidly and things that are bad are also sort of staying the same so I think that's partly why we feel it's it's a relevant way of thinking about things, isn't What do you think?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd agree with all of that. I think on a on a on a similar vein, but maybe approaching it from from a different kind of framework or or I don't know, from a different angle, but also related to what you were saying, Jeremy. Is this 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 kind of sense this at uh, this social affect of you know the times that we're living in in the UK at the moment where you know, as you're saying, there's this sense that movement, like the movement or the direction that we are experiencing is sort of stuff being done to us, stuff that's being done to the planet, like all of the action, as you're saying, is negative or bad or experienced in a bad way. And that's made me think about like what then that does to us as both human beings and as social actors in terms of how we relate to the concept of change. So, you know, a lot of our political leaders and we'll talk about this in a bit, but a lot of our political leaders and various different, uh, you know, actors and figures talk about, you know, this is time for change. It's it's time for change. Like we want to change, like changes. It. And it's, there's this assumption that change is good, whereas I think a lot of people are currently experiencing change as bad, and are wanting to say no, stop. We don't want any more change. We're, whereas in in effect, like something has to change, but it feels like they're not con- in control over it. So I guess I'm, what I'm saying is there's something there about movement and agency, and like what the relationship between movement and agency is at the same time though there's another plane of discussion which is really interesting which is about the you know the social psychology of mass anxiety and mass depression and i'd really like to talk about that i think we'll flesh that one out later but you know It should get us to a point of thinking, well, well, what kind of movement is both good and progressive socially, but also psychologically, you know, for humans in the 21st century? And what kind of stillness is required to be able to kind of build not just the world that we want, but also, you know, in the same vein as with the movement, um, kind of uh, happy, reflective, joyful human beings? So those are kind of some of the ins of why I'm interested in talking about both stillness and movement today. What about you, Kia?
0: Well, that's great. Yeah, now i have not that much to add in in terms of the the things we need to talk about, apart from perhaps to say that you know wh- one of the ways we can think about what's going on in this really present moment is that the left movement and perhaps we'll reflect on whether we can talk about or what it means to talk about movements at all in terms of social and political movements we'll get into that perhaps but in any which way we can definitely say you know those movements seem to move in sort of ebbs and flows and we are really are in a in an ebb at the moment the collective affect particularly on the left but i think probably more just socially is this feeling of stasis or stuckness and inability to move partially caused by a sort of cascading series of events which seem to overwhelm us, and you know, there's all sorts of war, etc., which which cause those sorts of effects of stuckness. Behind all of those, perhaps is that is is climate change, and it's like increasing instances or increasing rate at which you have these extreme weather events and you know so there's a feeling of like you know unstable movement but we're not in control of and in fact but stuckness we want to move it in a different direction where the movement is something that we are creating but we're also in control of creating moments of stillness in which we can analyze things perhaps and work out where to go anyway but let's we're going to get into that before we get into that let's do the parish notices so as you know or hopefully you know Every month, to go along with each new trip, we produce an ACFM newsletter. So, if you want to get weirder and leftier, you've got to sign up to it. It contains bonus content, little bits of writing, all sorts of unusual angles you can take that trip, etc. It's well worth uh, signing up to, I think. And to, to sign up to it, go to novara.media forward slash ACFM newsletter. At the same time, if you want less of our chat, and who can blame you? They're very long episodes. You can sign up to the ever-expanding ACFM playlist on Spotify. I mean, just search for ACFM on, on Spotify. Also, I'd say we've been getting some very nice reviews recently, and they give us a little bit of a boost. One of the things with doing a podcast is you don't get a lot of feedback uh, uh, to, to, you know, to keep you going and to say that in, that people are enjoying it, etc., So please do leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. When we say that, we only mean good reviews, of course. If you hate the show, well, the best thing is is to to embrace a moment of stillness and think about where your taste has gone wrong. Anyway, of course, it produces some sort of money. Uh, No, sorry. It requires (laughs) resources to produce podcasts, etc. You know, on ACFN, we're supported and we're hosted by Novara Media, who um, also do some other interesting stuff, I do believe. I need to check that out. Anyway, look, we think you should support our hosts if you can afford it. Support our host, Novara Media. You can do so for as little as a pound a month. You can sign up and uh, become a subscriber and support Novara Media by going to novara.media forward slash support. Parish notices out the way. Let's get back
1: into it. All right, let's hear uh, one of the greatest tracks ever recorded. Curtis Mayfield, 1970, Move On Up, clearly a song about movement and inspiring movements. So we're, we're going to be thinking around concepts concept of stillness moving in different ways, including thinking about nice kinds of stillness. But we're going to start off, I think, exploring this idea of the conjuncture, the present moment, the present historical moment. What is its nature? What's changing and what isn't? I, got, I had this phrase a few years ago, for a talk I did a few times called "Everything's Changing, but Nothing is Changing," and that was really a, the the pity expression of that long '90s thesis that you know somehow the the tech was all changing, but the con- cultural content wasn't. Yeah, but I don't think that's exactly where we are now. Now yeah. it, it is more like <laughs> clearly things are things are changing quite dramatically. The level of climate, the level of the apparent, the increasing kind of dissolution of any sort of uh, coherent public culture, but it's difficult to feel like anyone's really got any control over it. I think especially in the UK where we're really in a sort of political meltdown.
2: Yes. Yes. Yeah 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 so this is this is i think important is that when we situ- situate this conversation there's going to be like larger political trends that we're talking about you know on a kind of like on a on a century level um and but, the, the, but there's something very specific happening in the UK at the moment and i think What's important to know when we come and do a little bit of a, a historical analysis there and talk about the conjuncture is the amount of different events which this country has experienced just over the last 15 years. And I know we want to talk mostly about what's happening from from 2020, but just like the pandemic in itself, as a kind of very strange event where things are happening and accelerating, which you have no control over. And I wonder to what extent that has uh, an effect on, you know, and also the whole like stay at home thing and what it's done to people's psychology and ability to engage with movement in a positive way, in a progressive way, in a way that builds rather than destroys. Do you see what I mean?
0: Yeah. But also, I think we should say that in the UK, well, and in the US to some degree, but more so in the UK, the left, which was on the rise during the Corbyn years, has been f- thoroughly defeated by like neoliberal centrism in a in a just a you know much wider alliance with basically the political establishment and so that's why there's a feeling of like you know a stuckness to some degree that's why i would also argue however that the center is also basically in a position where it's just responding to events and has no program to control them, and in fact, the act of defeating the left, that the act of defeating Corbynism, really accelerated a process of breaking down the public sphere, breaking down the sort of norms of how democratic process should go, breaking down the sort of norms about how media should should respond and deal with politics, you know. It accelerated a process of that being breaking down the amount of like just political coherence and the inability to cohere a joint story about what's going on in the world. But that was massively accelerated by by the 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 act of defeating Corbynism, basically. And of course, the writers responded in a way in which it has given up all notion that you could have a shared picture of what's going on in the world. And in fact, just a complete embrace of cynical lying and and the the inculcation of like separate life worlds where if you're right-wing you will have no contact at all with like you, you know people from outside of that you know by setting up these new political institutions fox news obviously in, in the us but in the uk we've had like you know gb news and these these new billionaire oligarch funded news channels uh which have bear no resemblance to to you know the the very very imperfect sort of media environment that, that was around during the, the, the era of political efficacy, that also adds into this feeling of, of stuckness, I think, and, and, and inability to move and being overwhelmed by events, partly because it's just incredibly hard to to process and come to an understanding about them and catch come to a shared understanding about them and therefore to act on them.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, what's happened in the UK in the past three years is, well, really in the past six years, there was a... There have been populist and broadly democratic movements from both the right and the left, and the right project culminated in Brexit, which predictably was has been an economic disaster, and hasn't hasn't delivered any of the effects actually, which the its supporters were hoping it was going to, it was going to deliver. And then on the left, you know, there was the Corbyn movement, which was just. You know, it was just was shut down by the collaboration of the right wing of the Labour Party and various actors in the media and state institutions. And it was shut down with no real no real objective beyond those people making sure they kept their jobs, really. So now we're left in this situation where support for the Conservative Party has totally collapsed. I mean, they're pretty much now openly embracing what would have been seen as a fringe alt-right agenda just three years ago. But they're pretty they're doing that out of desperation, because they're in the opinion polls, like I don't think the Tories have been this low for this long in the in the history of the party. And Labour are clearly, it looks like Labour are going to form a government, but a very right-wing Labour government, but they're going to be come to power being very unpopular. I mean, they are really I mean the opinion poll show people are going to vote Labour rather than vote Tory, but they're going to do so with very little enthusiasm, because very little support for them or the programme. So we're going to be in we're heading to a situation where this political elite has managed to re-establish its authority which it had really lost after the 2008 financial crisis which it's really used the conditions of the pandemic and the aftermath of the pandemic and the chaos that ensued it's used that opportunity to re-establish itself but it's re-establishing itself with no other project beyond being in power so like I don't think it's even really accurate to to call these people neoliberal centrists anymore, because they, they don't really have any ideological content to their programme at all. Their programme is just, we are going to be the people in charge and we don't care what it takes to make sure we retain that situation. And so there's no sense of political direction because they don't have a political direction. They're, uh, they're just about retain- it is just about stillness. It's just about stasis. Exactly. Not in a political sense, but in a socio in a political, sociological sense, yeah, you know, the people who are currently running the institutions—from the Labour Party to the Bank of England to local authorities to universities—want to make sure they keep being the people running them for the next ten to fifteen years, and they don't care really what they have to do to to, to make sure that happens. So yeah, so that is that is the crisis, and it, but it does have you know it, it clearly does have correlates elsewhere. I mean, the closest correlate I can think of is our, one of our is our nearest geographical neighbour in, in France. The, I mean, to, the political content of the of Macron's program has been quite different because the precise political pressures in France are different. But I mean, you've had a fairly similar situation in which you know Macron got elected, you know, because of not being a fascist, you know, because the left had been successfully knocked out of the process, out of contention.
2: What you've just said, Jeremy, begs a really, question, which is, can political projects as- achieve social change without movement? Because that's something that I'm finding interesting about what you're saying. For France and for the UK, there's this project, basically, to do the least possible to achieve power, but not change. Then effectively, for lack of a better word, there is no momentum and it's that lack of momentum which is creating a kind of sense of cynicism amongst the wider population that, you know, like, fuck it, we don't, we you know, we're going to vote for the least worst option because we have no hope that things can be, that there's any movement that can match up to or level up to the multiple crises that are coming our way. Do you see what I mean?
1: If that distinction between movement and project is one I'm really interested in, and I want to come back to when we talk about the concept of a political movement quite shortly. But I think, in a way, I think project and movements are sort of conceptually different from each other, although they are, they're always related. But. I'd, in a sense, it's not, I would say, it's probably more accurate to say that in Britain at the moment, that political class, they don't even really have a project. They just have an intention, a set of intentions their intention is just to hold on to institutional power but they don't the problem is they even on their own terms they really don't have a project meaning they they don't have an idea really about what it's going to look like about what the next five years are going to look like yeah, how they're going to hang on to power how and how they're going to rebuild some kind of authority and legitimacy and once again we have to
0: say that like this is not 1997 when Tony Blair got into power in which the wider circumstances were more f- facilitous for a project, you know, for his project. This is the the, the worst possible moment to have a, a project based on stasis, basically, because that's not what's going to happen. It's like climate change. We can, it's not exogenous. It's caused by our activities, but it it, it feels as though it's something that, that that happens to us, basically. It's going to happen no matter what we do. And we can ameliorate it or we can um, accelerate it. And, and you know, and, and business as usual is just to accelerate it. Change is coming down the pipeline no matter what happens. So a politics of stasis is sort of, you know, it's
1: sort of like a King Canute type strategy if there's any strategy there at all. While well, thinking about, a show on movement and stillness i thought a lot about music which inc- encourages and facilitates stillness uh one of my favorite tracks uh, in the vein of music which is absolutely about celebrating and facilitating encouraging stillness is this this is from hiroshi yoshimuro's classic japanese ambient album music for nine postcards from 1981 this track is called urban snow
0: I'd want to say about the about this conjuncture particularly in the UK because the British social attitude survey came out a, a month or so ago it just showed that like political opinion in the UK is the most left wing it's been you know since the 1980s not just economically left, but also you know uh, in terms of attitudes towards things such as immigration, um, gay rights, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Of course, there's been like activity to try to reverse that by having moral panics about small boats, etc. But the direction of change is clear. It's almost as though there's something to do with living in contemporary capitalism, which sort of builds a sort of uh, people talk about it as like social liberalism or, or, or tolerance, but just builds you know uh, it acts against the inculcation of of like prejudices basically.
2: Well, what's mad about that is the culture is not reflecting that. And this is the thing. I mean, again, like I was pretty young and I was pretty young in the 80s, but I even remember in the early 90s that there are just loads of anti-establishment culture, whether it was on the radio or on the telly or whatever, where there's some kind of voice that spoke to that fact that things are really fucking shit, but like people have a perspective on this and it just feels so controlled. I mean, maybe it's just because we're old.
1: But I think with I mean my sense is with youth culture, it's partly because those attitudes are so ubiquitous now that it's kind of banal. Like it's not it's not a point of identification. Like when we were young, like, you know, you wouldn't be into someone like a big mainstream pop star like Taylor Swift, like and consider yourself basically on the left. And now, like, that's normal for like people, you know, sort of teenagers and people in their twenties, partly just because there's no the, that match, that connection between cultural and political identity, has been shifted because there aren't any. There just aren't any Tories amongst that generation. Like there are negligible numbers of them. Now, let me just put a let let's statistic on it. So, there was a, a poll the other day, um, and among
0: eighteen to twenty-four year olds in the UK, only one percent said they would consider voting Conservative. Yeah, one percent. It's insane. One percent. That is. That is. That. That is. I'm sure that's within. You know, so negligible. We could say that there is absolutely no support for.
1: Them. I mean, if you can, if you think about the 80s, I mean, the, I mean, the, the early 80s in British cultural history is like the high point of. that sort of cultural radicalism of like radicalism being in the culture and a lot of that stuff you remember from the 90s was sort of left over from that as we've talked about on the show loads show loads of times but again the actual politics was like thatcher had a lead among young voters Mm. in like 79 and 83
2: because there was an offer because there was an offer on the table that's what thatcher did there was an offer
1: yeah, there was an offer. And also saying in terms of the cultural thing, but like if you were a young person on the left, like you felt a bit beleaguered. like You felt like you had to kind of express it through your culture uh, yeah, because a you, felt a little, yeah. you felt a bit beleaguered because it wasn't normal. Like it, it wasn't the case that everyone in your class has hated the Tories and always had done.
2: Right. So this is interesting. And, and coming back to our subject, I would say, well, even if what you're saying is true and it sounds like, you know, it totally makes sense what you're saying, Jeremy, it doesn't necessarily mean that that would lead to a progressive movement or a pr- progressive political
1: Mate. forward
2: motion amongst that, you know, class of young people. Because my 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 observation on that is that because of the state of play because of the state of the nation because of the economics because of the depressive anxious anxiety filled affect that we're in is people effectively want to retreat to small groups and want to retreat to you know Safe spaces, for lack of a better word, as opposed to this kind of like expansive, joyful, like growth based, you know, youth culture, which I'm finding I find it really difficult not to think that the latter is is better in terms of progressive politics so so that's the challenge for me right when it comes to talking about stillness and movement is it's like okay well what is our what is our if we were to scenario plan like an acfm scenario plan based on what we've just said like what are the potential outcomes even if we're, we're seeing as all you know the statistics that you've talked about and and other indicators say that you know young people say hate the Tories like what is the outcome from a movement level
1: well I'm still harping on your your question about the the culture really right. about the place of culture, because I think you're right that I just want to say I think it's an important part of the general diagnosis of the strengths and weaknesses of the left like now and over the past five years that in some ways the lack of a or kind of radical left culture was part of one of the weakness which made meant that Corbinism crumbled so quickly. And it's tied to the fact that a lot of people I mean, you know, you I'm really sort of I'm I'm I don't I'm not talking about ACFM listeners now, almost by definition, but you know, you're, my impression is your typical 20-something today, on the one hand, they'll tell opinion pollsters and they think to themselves consciously that basically, I'm a socialist, I want radical change. But a lot of, so much of their affective economy and their way of thinking about themselves and the world is shaped by this hyper-capitalist logic, like Instagram and, a, and, ide- and identity politics and a kind of consumer, kind of retail politics. Exactly. Music. They they find it really difficult to, you know, participate in collective movements or projects for any length of time and with any kind of discipline. And and that was and that's partly why that is why corbinism sort of crumbled so quickly in part. So I think it is really important. But then that's that's a persistent theme of our show from literally day one, from episode one about collective joy. A persistent theme is one of the things we need for an effective political movement against Maybe we're not in neoliberalism anymore. against capitalism, really. Is forms of culture which promote feelings of solidarity, feelings of collectivity, feelings of collective joy, not just in the kind of fleeting moments of ecstasy, but in the sense of really enabling people to experience themselves as part of wider groups over sustained periods that you know are what I call collect, you know, potent collectivities are way are, are able to actually be in the world and do things collectively and we you know we've talked quite a lot on the show about some of the cultural forms that can do that but we also you know it's partly that it's you know it's partly what we need from artists and cultural actors is to keep inventing new ones no, no i think, I think you're on.
2: right i think i think you're totally right and i think so there's several things there like one is just i'd be interested actually in terms of like, you know, whether if we're going into the, the detail of those polls or whatever, of like how, if there was a question about how people define themselves, because I'm, I would be surprised if people define themselves as, you know, so young people define themselves as socialists yeah, and yeah, communists. But yeah. even if they do, to be honest, going back to the point that we brought up a couple of podcasts ago, or maybe it was the, the last episode, is that just because people say they're something doesn't mean that they are. And there's plenty of groups of people out there who call themselves socialists who I would look at their politics. Politics and be like that's not socialist politics, mate. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's all these various different interplay about like why, from an identitarian perspective, people would want to call themselves communists or or socialists, but actually, it's not in the practice. And for me, all of politics is always in the practice. It has to be about what you do and how you relate to society and other people.
1: Before it sounds like a bunch of middle-aged people are just moaning about you. I'm not y- moaning. Y- y- I'm I make
2: ma- a lot more than moaning. I've
1: been moaning. I've been moaning about these the, the precisely this tendency among a certain type. Leftists since I was, you know, fourteen, and like they were all uh, older than me. So it's not like it's not like being that kind. You know, it's not like that kind of a thing has only just been invented. Absolutely
2: not. You're right. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of older people who are doing who are doing this, but it's just that you know, online forums makes it worse as a as a phenomenon in my view.
0: Can I just uh, interject? Because uh, I'm developing a new ACFM character called Mister Stats, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, uh, so no I haven't got don't. any this stats. Is, this I haven't is, got any stats for the UK about the, the title Socialist because uh, it's slightly more widespread. But like, basically, in the US, a couple of years ago, there was
1: um, a poll which was showed more that than a have... couple of years ago, now this this was about seven seven years ago that poll. You were about to say, I think it's slightly <laughs> less than that, but anyway, you're sewing so um, each
2: other's heads. No, this is cosmic, it, was 2015.
1: Man. it was like 2015. Oh, I knew, I knew Jeremy wouldn't let me
0: embrace my stats.
1: <laughs> Come on, embrace
0: <laughs> it. It's true. It's, it's, it's nonetheless
2: true. Let him, own no, it. no, let him own it.
0: More people said more young people. And I think this was like, um, under 35s. So I'm, I'm, I'm not great at being Mr. Stats because my memory is awful, <laughs> but I'm still developing this character. Um, more people under 35 in the us said that identified as socialist and identified as capitalist or had more favorable attitudes towards socialism than it did the towards capitalism us is capitalism. different us is different
2: i would say with that with that terminal with with the use of that terminology like there's different you know there's there's different shit going on there
0: there is, yeah, but that, like, if you know, but if you found that in the UK, you would not be as surprised as you would find to find that in the US. I would say no, because, like, the other way because there's not a history of a social democratic party in the US, basically, and so like socialism and communism is was completely outside of what is percep was acceptable to say, basically. And of course, I know what you're going to say now, dear. So when that came up, you know, a lot of what people thought about when they were socialists was oh we just want you know welfare state like they imagine still exists in scandinavia and so forth right so yes i I understand that but still it it, that like these are imperfect sort of like indicators that show that there is some sort of movement going on there is some sort of dissatisfaction that you can't accept that as just an accomplished fact therefore all we need to do is take power and move into socialism right that's obviously not true you know we and and Gem's completely right. You know, we we all exist in this world of like, you know, uh, of social media and these sorts of things, which which you know force us to think about ourselves as as brands and all these sorts of things. You know, really deleterious to collective forms or solid collective forms of organisation, which lend itself to like mobilisation by by particular affects rather than you know the the long term patient, perhaps slower. Work the slow, boring of holes, uh, as Weber put it. You know, of the, of politics, but it's still something. Basically, it's still something you have to take on board when you're when you're thinking about the conjuncture, what to do next.
2: Great speech. That was not what I was going to say. Just saying, you you, oh. you guessed wrong. You guessed you guessed wrong, actually, Kia, But fine, that was a really nice spiel. I'll let you have it. Go on.
0: Well, ventriloquizing somebody else is one of the one of the characteristics of my new stats ca- character we should play the song at home he's a tourist by the Leeds band classic Leeds post punk band gang of four the re- very interesting band who formed at the at the art school There were a wave of bands that came out of the art school at, at the leeds university and the art school at the the leeds poly as was at the band the Mekon's come out of the the poly it was a highly sort of like politicized highly quite theoretically sophisticated sort of scene at, at that point Gang of Four formed with the the singer John King, guitarist Andy Gill, and then the drummer Hugo Burnham are the only ones I can actually think of at the moment. And they released this album, Entertainment, in 1979, I think that is, which contains this this song, At Home He's a Tourist. And it gets to that point, perhaps when you go somewhere where you leave where you're from, where you go somewhere else, you, know, you, you can get that sense of alienation. You're outside of the culture, and of course, the point with this is that sense of alienation is is present in contemporary capitalism, contemporary capitalist 1979 leads as well.
2: At home, he feels like a tourist.
1: I mean, one of the things that we are now heading towards in this conversation is is one of the topics we wanted to talk about. that is what what does it look like when you have a social or political movement? Like, what 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 is is there a difference between a bunch of people answering yes to a question on a, in an opinion poll and a movement? It's a really interesting question, and it's one that's hotly debated by theorists, philosophers, sociologists. Political scientists. It's worth taking a moment just to think about this terminology, even though. So there was a huge amount of talk during the years of Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party about his stated desire to turn the Labour Party into a social movement. And there was a lot of grumbling and dissatisfaction from pedants like me about this. I would say, well, I know we know what he means, but By definition, the Labour Party cannot itself be a social movement because those are just two different types of things. The Labour Party could animate a social movement or at least a political movement. It could lead one. It could be part of one. It can't be one because what a social movement is... Is a specific kind of thing, which is different kind of thing from a political party. There's also a question as to whether you make a di- can make a distinction between a social movement and a political movement. It's not; of- those distinctions are not often made. I tend to think it's quite important because I sort of think I think Corbynism was a political movement. I don't think it ever really could be said to have been a social movement in the most capacious sense.
2: So don't you think that there was like political signalling? by making that statement whether or not Corbyn actually thought that he could actually build a movement Do you know what I mean you no
1: know, sure yeah exactly that that's why that's why I said I would always say I know what he means and I endorse what he means in terms of what he is aspiration
2: yeah. but technically but technically they are different things which I would agree with it <laughs> makes sense I mean you know you're right you are right
1: and it does you know it gestures towards a bigger question there but what like where, where do these terms come from? Like what what do they even mean? So we don't hear this terminology so much these days. But there was a lot of talk on the left and within sociology and um, political science, certain branches thereof, from the really from the early seventies onwards about what was called for years the new social movements. And this is a term I've asked like absolute experts on this, and nobody can agree exactly who first coined that phrase. But the so-called new social movements were the names given to these social and political tendencies that have become very visible by the early 70s. You can say maybe begin with the peace movement in Britain, the anti-nuclear movement in the 50s, with civil rights in the United States around the same time. They include the ecology movement, they include women's liberation, gay liberation, black power. And these all came to be referred to under this umbrella heading of the new social movements. And they were new because basically they were seen as having a different historical temporality to the sort of classical movements which emerged in the 19th century. And they're basically socialism of of various kinds and nationalism of various kinds. So if there were old social movements, maybe they were socialism and and nationalism. But then this phrase social movement, I think it was most, in, in some ways, that the thing which the term social movement most obviously applied to, I think was... Women's liberation, because one of the distinctive features of women's liberation was the fact that it, well, it wasn't primarily organised around a set of political and legal demands, like even the uh, civil rights movement was. It had been in the states. It was organised organized around a very broad-based aspiration to change social behaviour across the society and to change people's ways of thinking and perceiving the world, and change a whole way of life in a, in a really fundamental way and then i think ever since say the high point of women's liberation in places like britain america australia france other places as well say in the early 70s there's always been this question as to well can you pinpoint other formations which have that scope they have that level of internal coherence they have that level of apparent efficacy in actually changing people's attitudes and outlooks across a whole range of social spheres and it you know, it's a really interesting question.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, okay. So, a question that I would posit against that to kind of test that in a way to be like, okay, well, if if that's the question we're asking, like, where else has there been a movement that's like the 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 women's movement? Then I would try and kind of dig down and say, well, well, in in practice, what does that look or feel like? How does that express itself in society? And I guess I'd argue that the, and I might end up being wrong with this, but I'm going to test it anyway, this idea that there has to be some sense of momentum. There's a pot that's boiling and it's been on the simmer for some while. And then now it's about to like tip over and and we are experiencing this social change off the back of this effervescence and it's key, you know, it's building momentum and it keeps on growing, you know, which is why momentum is actually like a really important term to talk about here and then you find yourself in a situation you know a decade later or, or a couple of decades later where where society has effectively changed just because of the surge and i'm using these terms on purpose like the surge or the momentum that is coming from like such a You know, widespread and big movement, whether or not it is in the majority or not. But then you end up in a situation, you know, with the example that you're talking about with the women's movement, where society is is so dramatically changed in terms of the role of 50% of its population socially, which then tips into uh, a lot of other um, legal and political rights. So like, you know, you're right, Jeremy, this is not what this is not how it manifested itself. But it's also off the back of, you know, so called first wave being about, you know, women's suffrage and whatever. So there were kind of legal rights on either end of it, really.
0: That's the classic way of uh, of of thinking about a social movement as like a parabolic arc, where you you have this explosive moment where new things get created, new problems, new ways of thinking, or at least they're, they're new in terms of the way that society was thinking or or sensing the world before that. You get this explosive moment, and then you know it goes, it starts to spread. You have momentum, and then the the the, the it produces these new movement forms and repertoires, etc. And they sort of get exhausted as you have a diffusion of these new attitudes and the, these new problems to divide a society.
2: I mean, it, it, it's kind of, I think maybe one of the answers, again, with women is that with, with women, women are not a minority. And women can't be minoritized because it's like literally half mm. half the people. So it's like in every house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's like literally every household, like almost every household, mm. you know, it could, you know, obviously not, not all households, but in general households, maybe not every workplace, but in society, like women are everywhere. So like, even from a vantage point of like, uh of you know like a very male standpoint whether or not you have consciousness around the patriarchy or not it's kind of like shit the women are pissed off like there's a lot of women you know i mean it's not the same as like perhaps other groups and other causes that can be minoritized in the same way
0: i think it might be worth going into social movement theory a little bit though because that'll help give us some sort of definitional thing and so that's like that's social movement theory is like you know it's a there's a field of study, social, social movement theory within sociology, uh, and the dominant form of that is this weird sort of set of theories based coming out of American liberalism, basically. Um, and in fact, one of the classic models of the political system within political science is uh, the black box model of the political system, which is this Robert Easton's black box. And he takes it from Ludwig van Bertalanffy's sort of general system theory so it's like this it's, it's almost like cybernetics right it's like you know you want to reduce the entity you're looking at to a series of inputs and outputs and feedback mechanisms and what goes on within that entity perhaps a rabbit in its environment perhaps a political system you know in- interacting with society that's you can leave that as a black box because what counts is what goes in what comes out and how feedback between wider society uh, relates to it and so like there's this there's this sort of black box mechanism and like Pluralism is an expansion. Robert Dahl's theory of pluralism is it, you know, it, it elaborates on on Easton's black box model, and then U.S. social movement theory sort of takes that that sort of feedback arc and says, yes, that's the that's the shape of a social movement. Like I was saying earlier, you have this sort of moment in which it's an explosion, like you were saying, Nadia, of like a pent up perhaps pent up needs and desires which cannot be expressed by it through the political system at the moment so you have this eruption out, outside this, this the the social system and the social movement the social movement takes on the form of feedback uh, for the political system because it cannot access it but like and within that there's a various types of theory but one of the most dominant ones is what they call it resource mobilization theory and and it's interesting because it does have this form of like variability of speeds, something like that. It was like this explosion of creativity, probably. Like, you normally an event, right? So we'd say Seattle 1999 produced the anti-globalization movement. You have these, like, perhaps the invention of new, they call them repertoires of contention, or, but they could be, like, forms of acting, forms of organization, slogans, that sort of thing. Perhaps new ways of thinking, new problems, which previous society couldn't relate to. I mean, we've t- I've talked about it in terms of this Moments of Excess before, and one of the things that influenced me in, in Moments of Excess was an article by a guy called Aristide Zolberg, who basically wrote an article called Moments of Madness, in which he sort of looked back at all of the big, explosive social movement events uh, and, like, revolutions in France, going back to the Paris Commune. This is a post-1968 article, obviously, and he said, look, that, you know, within those, you see the same sort of things happening. You see this... These same people thinking, you know, this incredible acceleration, you know, an opening up an acceleration of during these moments, you're active all the time, you're involved in all of these conversations. People who d- you didn't used to talk to each other talk to each other, new stuff emerges. When I when we call it moments of excess, it's because it's like it creates all this new stuff which exceeds the the society, the pre-existing society's ability to sense it or make sense of the world, basically. You produce all this new stuff and then there's an arc which which sort of which in which the the that the, that new thinking either dev- devolves into or dis- dis- distributes into society becomes the new influences the new common sense, or basically you get defeated and <laughs> shunted off to one side.
2: What you're describing here is like. All of that makes sense. But, you know, like there are huge amounts of like needs and desires that people have, like in Britain today, which are not being fulfilled. But it feels like the energy is inward looking and it's like being internalized in a way rather than coming with this kind of like explosive exothermic energy. And maybe that's because we can't predict, you know, what I call tipping points, which is something that I'm really interested in. And maybe at the next point, there will be a tipping point and all of that energy, that pent up energy, which is coming out in anxiety, it's coming out in domestic violence, it's coming out in people just sitting in front of screens, it's coming out at people ranting at each other and shouting at each other on high streets, maybe that energy is actually going to be, will be at some point, become some sort of movement. Because that's, that's the thing for me, which I'm struggling with, is that What is it about the conditions today which seem to make a movement almost impossible, and instead we've got a kind of—it's not a stillness; it's kind of like an anxious, carbonated bottle, where where the the effervescence has nowhere to go.
1: I would say—I mean—the answer to that question is one I think we're exploring on the show all the time, and 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 it's something that you know I've written about, and other people have that. The, the whole matrix of advanced capitalist culture the whole, the whole point of it is to prevent people from feeling like collective agency is, can be a, a real possibility like at every level every minute of the day to a certain extent that the whole thing is about making people feel that something like a collective movement is not possible and that the only forms of agency they can exercise are micro forms around their own immediate, life world their own immediate spheres you know mostly forms of consumption or forms of kind of consumptive expression so i think we sort of know what i think and i think to the extent that that goes unchallenged or the challenges to that are periodically defeated it's just inevitably going to keep getting worse like it's going to get worse every single year except to the extent that there are countervailing forces and countervailing projects i think
2: Sure. But don't you think with that argument, like based on what we were saying about like how basically the 70s happened or the 60s happened or whatever, like that's off the back of like really oppressive, like 1950s, you know, gendered social roles. So like, this is not the first time in the last 150 years where we have moments where it's like, this is such a controlled environment.
1: Yeah, there there were, but I don't think the specific what's specific to this period really the past few decades is the way that it makes people feel collectively disempowered which i don't th- like the right the 70s didn't happen in that context happened in a context which people had a had had all kinds of experience of collective empowerment they often felt individually repressed mm. but co- collectivity like at the level of the factory the level of the state yeah, you know, the level of the neighborhood felt very powerful so it did feel possible and So much of what's happened, the whole project of neoliberalism, this is always my argument really, is to surgically remove from people's daily lives, like any experience of that sort of collective potency. I mean, that's partly why, you know, that we still remember the the revolt of the 60s and 70s in such ambivalent terms, because they were partly people looking for kind of individual freedoms or personal, private freedoms but they were also collective expressions of of democratic desire at the same time. I mean, that's what's sort of specific to the historical moment we're in now, is that people are subject to these mechanisms which try to make them feel disempowered. I think there are countervailing forces in it. They're not just political forces. There are also countervailing forces in the fact that well, And this is something typical of the history of capitalism as well. You know, platform capitalism, it, it, it has to... To some extent, to get its stuff done, it has to give people tools like social media, which don't only turn you into a narcissistic lunatic; they also give you the capacity to organise with millions of other people simultaneously in a historically unprecedented way. So, there are always countervailing tendencies, and it's those countervailing tendencies which people have to try to build on. I think, in order to create opportunities, so. I wouldn't want to say like, oh, this is like the worst moment in history. It's never been this bad before. Even at the level of that sort of individual disempowerment, actually, because I think you can look you can look back at earlier moments in the history of capitalism. You know, my reference point is always like Daniel Defoe writing Mole Flanders in like the 18th century. Like he pre- presents this vision of like early capitalist London as a s as a zone of that we would really recognize, like a zone of atomization, which like social bonds have all broken down. Like nobody can trust each other. No one, everybody's competing with each other. People are dying in the street because nobody cares about each other. So that is a persistent tendency of capitalism, which at other times has been resisted. It's been it's been resisted by progressive forces. It's also been, at times, capitalists themselves have been forced to sort of resist that tendency for the sake of preserving any kind of a social fabric at all.
0: We should also recognise that there are, uh, you know, um, social movements or nascent social movements emerging all the time. One of the problems, I think, is you know that little narrative I was giving, going on giving earlier about this explosion. It's almost like a spontaneous argument that. That's not enough to create a sustained social movement. You need social movement organisations, basically.
2: Sorry, it's not enough for what? Just can you clarify that?
0: It's- well, I'm, I created this this, 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 I recreated from American social movement theory, this, this idea that you have this sort of like this spontaneous explosion, which creates all this creativity that then diffuses into society and change happens that's a liberal argument That's like it's not enough just to have this like wait let's wait on these we can see all these unmet needs and desires surely they'll arise and the world will be a nice place that's just basically not enough
2: but you can but you can get change you can get really dramatic change from that it's just about sustaining and embedding those values or those kind of quote unquote wins politically might be the thing that you're unable to do. If you use the example of the Egyptian revolution like the problem was in 2011 is that there was no infrastructure, there was no progressive infrastructure to create any sort of organization to kind of take over or provide an alternative platform like after the fall of yeah. you know the president Mubarak there was and so the Muslim Brotherhood took over but it didn't mean that they didn't topple the first dictator in 7000 years <laughs> like, like it no, still no, happened. No no yeah totally yeah. You know, yeah, it still happened. So the actions still happen. You still get these markers. You can still get these markers, which we will then look back at and go, "Oh, look at this!" You know, on this timeline, this happened. This happened. This happened. But you're right. If if this is what you're alluding to, that it doesn't necessarily lead to some kind of systemic change, then that's different. Then that's the point. Yes. Isn't
0: it? No. I, I absolutely I, that that is basically the, the point I was trying to make. And I think you can use that to analyse and think about the social movements which are emerging, such as Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil. You know, they are social movements. They've mobilised lots of people to various degrees in the different organisations. But what they don't have and almost don't have by design is the ability of those people To have that moment of stillness away from the, we must do something about this incredible crisis. To step back and say, yes, but what should we do? How's it gone so far? How should we adjust our strategy? And I say it's by design because Roger Hallam uh, purposely tries to prevent that. You know, the the sort of like organic growing of social movement organizations, which can step back, reflect, and uh, uh, and and change direction and, and aim not just for this explosive. You know, we must do something to. Well, if, yeah. Well, how do you win then? Do you know what I mean? And when, if you look at the, if you look at the history of XR, it's, they have to check Harlem out in order to, to try to go, start to begin to go through that process.
2: We should play the 1995 track "It's Oh So Quiet" by Bjork from her incredible album *Post* for its auditory contrasts between cool, slow, and reflective bars and big, brassy, active sounds urging life and movement. So peaceful until you fall in love. Simple, the sky up above. Sinful is caving in. Wow, wow, You've never been so nuts about a guy. You want to love, you want to cry, you cross, you have to hope to die. There's also something else which is kind of like quite a boring thing to talk about, but you know, it is to do with like power and money, which is around resources, like how resources play into how people organise themselves as movements or organisations. And that could be in terms of both how they are co-opted, like movements or like groups of people or or collectives can be co-opted by, you know, larger NGOs or like structures or whatever that have the resources to resource them and therefore they end up, you know, perhaps changing certain parts of their policy or whatever and don't end up being as radical as they were. But also you get a lot of really radical and interesting groups which under the current conditions... They might they they might not be able to reflect because they don't have the resources to reflect. So therefore, they build their kind of political structure and outward facing tactics on the fact that the one thing that they can do is go out and do more demonstrations because they've got no capacity to kind of like meet and think a, on a resource level. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. And I but I and I'm going to say at this point, I'm going to try to explain why for me it is a really important question, like what. Actually, is your definition of a movement? Like, why is the typology of movements important? And and why is it important to push back against what I think is like a massive overuse of that term movement? Good, let's do it. Because I mean, I'll tell the story. I don't think I've told this on the show before. I think you two have heard it loads of times. I can't I don't think I've actually told it on the show, but apologize if I had. One of the funniest experiences in my political life was getting studied by some Italian sociologists as a supposed representative of the British anti-capitalist movement sometime in the early 2000s. So there was me, a a few other activists in a room, at so us. And these Italian sociologists were studying us like it was a whole day. And they wanted us to talk about our experiences as, as part of the anti-capitalist movement and, and mostly our feelings about it. And they absolutely hated me because my first response was to say, well, I don't think there is any. there is no movement. There's like a few hundred people who who go to demo who all know who pretty much all know each other and go and go to demos and actions. But I don't think you can meaningfully designate that a movement. It would like to become a movement. There's an aspiration to have a movement, but there has to but it doesn't pass a threshold beyond which you could really call it one but I think this is important. I've had arguments with people, you know, I've had arguments with people about whether or not you can ever apply any kind of criteria to the question of whether at a given historical moment, there is an active women's movement. And uh, this person said to me, if there, if there are two people anywhere in the world who regard themselves as part of a women's movement, then, then there is a women's movement. And my response to that was, well, you know, like oh, comrades of mine who and friends of mine who dedicated years of their lives to building women's liberation in the seventies and eighties might have something to say about whether their their work was more was of no different value from two people on the internet calling themselves a movement. And I think it's important because I think a huge problem with a lot of activism is, and this is true on a really large scale, it became true of Corbynism, but it's also often true of people involved in things like environmental activism, is, honestly, people get caught up in the excitement of their moment and of a few dozen or maybe a few hundred of their friends being really mobilised around an issue and they lose sight of the the difficult question of what it would mean to actually grow that coalition out past the po- to the point where it could actually have some political efficacy and one of the mistakes people often make in uh, in over in overstating to themselves like how successful they're being at a given moment how much effect they're having is they start calling what they're doing a movement when really it's not it might be a proto movement it might have want to be a movement but it has not yet achieved the status of a movement and because i think the i think being a proper movement as i would call it is a thing to aspire to and it's a useful benchmark of success and i think i mean i thought around corbinism for example it was an important distinction because it was quite successful as a political movement i don't think it ever did get to the point of being a social movement by which i mean it didn't really get to the point where there was a widespread sense in the wider society of what it would mean to be part of that collective project for change at the level of kind of shared cultural attitude, shared identity, shared critique of other tendencies in particular amongst people who were not really actively involved. And I think this is another key thing. This comes back to what Keir was saying. This is a kind of line I've had for years and years, which I really stick to. If you look at the examples of like clearly relatively successful movements historically, like civil rights or women's liberation, they then not just even large networks of activists like what it means from my point of view probably to have a movement is you got a bunch of people who they're never going to turn up to a meeting they're probably never going to turn up to a demo but they they support you and they sort they have a general idea of what it means to support you and having and that having that penumbra of like relatively passive supporters who are they're not doing them they're not activists they're relatively static a bit but they're sort of part of the movement for change in that they share your desires your aspirations is really really important and also any movement does have spaces within it like Keir was saying for for stillness for reflection for strategy for strategizing for evaluating how things are going for thinking And in fact, to the extent that women's liberation is like one of the classic examples, you know, as I've said before many times, women's liberation was nothing but it was it was a bunch of reading groups. Like that was its organisational form, basically. (laughs) That's why it's Jeremy's ideal (laughs) movement. Okay,
2: Okay, wait, 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 wait. Can we just can we just clarify one thing? So when you're saying people share your like these are non we're talking about non-active people who are sharing your vision or like what you want to achieve with, with regard to the women's movement who's you in this case do you mean other people or you mean some kind of no. leadership
1: No, I mean, if you're, if you're like an active, an active participant in what was called being called women's liberation. Right. So
2: non-active and active. right?
1: you know, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I've written about this before, years ago. I mean, one of the things that made the women's movement a successful movement was that it became the case that there were people who were just, they were just doing literary criticism. But they had a sense of what it meant to do literary criticism from a point of identification with that movement and its objectives.
2: I would say it was more because there's shitloads of women who were standing up to their husbands at home. That's what made well, I didn't, it I didn't, I'm not No 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 I'm not I'm not count this is not a counter this is not a counterpoint, Jeremy. I'm saying like it, it's it's all of those things together, right? It's not just that when when we talk about people being in, inactive, basically I'm trying to to think about what you're saying about the women's movement and think about how yeah. do we think about it in relation to something like Corbynism, Like who who because with the women's movement there were so many people who like they might have been standing up to their husbands at home but actually yeah, have never right. yeah. have never joined even a literary criticism whatever but they felt empowered by feeling like oh women are changing something so they are literally in the domestic sphere changing social relations on mass what is the equivalent and I in for example the so-called Corbin movement and I think this proves your point if anything is that what would have been that conversation where which people are pushing up against something that would have created the conditions for it to become a social movement? And I don't know what the answer is.
1: Well, I think, I think the project of ACFM has always been partly to contribute to that, because it would be having conversations, not just it would the political movement aspect of Corbynism. For it to be a political movement, it needed loads of people to sign up and join the Labour Party. It needed the most passive people simply to vote Labour. It needed slightly more active people to just get an online membership and vote the way they were asked to in NEC elections. That was its status as a political movement, but to be a social movement, it would have also needed people having broader conversations, which people like us and TWT were always committed to, to encouraging about, okay, well, what does it mean to think about the world in a genuinely non-neoliberal way? Like, What does it mean to actually relate, start to relate to each other in terms of solidarity? So consciousness raising lives, on right? a
2: local level, exactly. effectively. Exa-
1: yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, Interesting. exactly. Interesting. And that's not I mean, that's like a novel idea that was like people like us kind of, you know, were ran with. But if you go back if you go back like a hundred years, that was absolutely normally, it was widely understood within the labor movement and the socialist movement. The part of what it meant to be a socialist was to think about, well, how do you apply those principles in all kinds of areas of life? And that and that was when socialism was a social movement. I mean, that was yeah. socialism was a social movement right. and under those historic circumstances when people were thinking about well, what, what does it mean? What does it mean to do things in a socialist way, like in schools? What does it mean to do things in a socialist way in your fa- in the family in, in your neighbourhood? Yeah, when I go cycling, I go cycling as a socialist. It was a
0: widespread <laughs> attitude and practice.
2: Sure, but the, but this is inter- This is this is really really good actually because it gets me thinking. Right, what was the sort of activity, like in in a real sense, in a like you know, in, in an event sense, that was taking place on a local level. During Corbynism. And, you know, I I would say, from my knowledge, the sort of, okay, there were some things that I would think were potentially like radical, but mostly it was things like fundraisers, you know? And like a fundraiser is not a radical form. So I think to test your argument would be saying, act, act. Actually, what would have needed to have happened in you know the late stages of Corbynism is some kind of development of like radical forms of interacting that were practicing something. But actually, what we had was you know some were fantastic events you know in support of Corbyn or in support of whatever. But it's not actually as a radical form or like ideologically moving us beyond you know the, the system as it exists.
1: No, that's right. And we came up against the limits of the result, the, the fact that to do that properly would have needed resources. I mean, that's what, what do we do? We do, you know, we do a podcast so we can be like really minor internet celebrities, you know, talking about this stuff. Like we don't, that's, because that's basically what we do. We don't do it to be
2: yeah, no, so But we've like
1: got, that's you. what we've got the resources to do. Yeah. That's all we've got the resource to do. Like what we would have really liked to do. And we, you know, we said to people, at the time, what we would have loved to do and like friends at things like the World Transform would have loved to do, is like, have like a national network of local groups of people doing consciousness raising and doing experimental culture and also getting involved in local politics
2: and rave in every constituency jeremy that's what we were going for (laughs) but
1: every time anybody suggested to the only organizations in the country with the resources to facilitate that uh, the trade unions they might want to give like the world transform some money to do some of that they they get they said they weren't interested
2: now that's yeah. also about trust, isn't it? It's about trust and control and like where the centre is. It's a bit centre and periphery, isn't it, as well, this kind of argument? It is,
1: but it but it also speaks to this question of movement and the fact that totally. the, one of the features, historic features of trade union bureaucracies is they become very suspicious yeah, right, right. Of, of the a whole idea of the labour movement as a social movement. They prefer it to be, at best, a political movement. Uh, and preferably just what you might call an industrial movement. In other words, one that really that restricts its objectives and its f- sphere of operation to workplaces and workplace demands.
2: And there could be a counter-argument that was just this, this this little piece, that there could be a counter-argument that says that actually, like avant-garde like, expressions and like forms of, of relating need to happen outside political movements anyway. And they can never really come up with that kind of innovative expressions when constrained by something like a movement.
1: I totally agree. And this comes back to another point I wanted to make about these moments of madness. And I would say from my thoroughly Gramscian perspective, the problem with that notion of moments of madness and of the various iterations of it in, in different theoretical schools is that it always ignores the extent to which well there's always some kind of groundwork going on there's always some history to those moments they're always they are tipping points rather than just miraculous events like always and from that point of view the the, the big historic moments when there's been really productive you know there's been productive eruptions of novelty Then there are always moments when, well, that you you get some kind of positive relationship happening between political movements, sections of established institutions, and those zones of the culture where indeed the the real experimentation has to happen and has to happen relatively autonomously. So there's this sort of moments. There are these sort of resonances which emerge, but they don't just emerge. They're deliberately cultivated. So you know what's happening. What's happening in the early 70s is, you know women's liberation doesn't come out of nowhere this is partly why i really hate for you know as an aside i hate that type that popular typology that says oh there's a first wave of feminism there's a second wave of feminism there's because it diff it does it fails to differentiate between the moments of movement organization and the periods when feminism is a relatively organized political project but it doesn't really have a movement form so which is yeah, people have this idea. There's no feminism between like women's suffrage and 1969, which is nonsense. Because, yeah, you know, for example, the American Civil Rights Act in 64, like 65, contains all these provisions around sexual equality. Um, and that's because there had been people who, had, who who could trace their political ancestry back to the suffrage movement and socialist feminism in the early 20th century who were still involved in institutions and in politics and in unions over the course of the decades of the 20th century and were committed to feminist objectives. And it was the fact that those people were still there kind of beavering away, the fact that they were artists and poets and filmmakers and playwrights, you know, giving voice to women's desires and women's dissatisfaction yeah, over all, over all that period, is the fact that people like Simone de Beauvoir sort of publishing from in nineteen forty nine, all all that stuff converges. Yeah, all that stuff converges in the late sixties and early seventies, and it converges with elements of the trade union movement who are broadly sympathetic. It converges with you know male trade union bureaucrats who are you know have some historic memory of the socialist feminism of the early 20th century and are just, you know, decent guys who can see what's happening. Then, it's when all that stuff converges. And the
2: non-decent ones were forced to. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying all that stuff converges and it converges because people make it converge, not just because it spontaneously happens. Mm. And so the work of politics is nearly always about beavering away trying to do your thing and also trying to make those convergences happen and they usually don't but those those apparent moments when everything suddenly changes and becomes possible and new movements emerge they're always the product of people doing that kind of work which is partly why i think you know i think it is important to reflect in some ways you know we 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 opened the show talking about like the present moment as if it's historically like really really bad but i would say really if you look at the whole history of capitalism going back to the enclosures like it's probably more normal to be in one of these moments when it feels like everything's going to shit and you you've just suffered a, re- a, a terrible disappointing defeat and only the complete bastards are in power and it's probably more normal to feel like you're in one of those moments and to keep pushing through it and keep pushing through it until new configurations become possible.
0: I mean, I totally agree with all of that, obviously. But I think like definitionally, I think there's also an important point in there. And it's the point you made, Gem, that like what looks spontaneous is a result of like, when you look back in hindsight, a result of this huge amount of organizing, this sort of like cultural preparation, etc. And then always, always when you have a movement explosion of these sorts, you know, some initiator group, some initiator who say, let's do this. You know, like Occupy Wall Street, there's eight people in a in a room and say, why don't we do this? And then that sort of, you know, become, takes on a form which gets reflected in the Arab Spring, you know, the, the whole protest camp, uh, and it spreads all over the place. But the point is, you know, there is always groups saying, let's do this. And most of them fail, and so it's the the distinction is sometimes you do you know even though there's all preparation, you have these moments, these sort of explosive moments where things just resonate and just and people see themselves in whatever form of in in the in the form of like either the action repertoire or the form of organisation or that you know they see themselves in it and they want to either participate or they just basically they feel positively about it so there is there's a there is a moment of like chance and spontaneity and allowing things to go out of control basically which is why i think the corbyn movement like lots of the people who you know were 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 basically in control of the corbyn movement didn't want the social movement to explode because they would not be in control of that they don't know quite where that's going to go right uh, and obviously there's that also relates of course to like the the constraints of electoral politics, uh, in terms of like you know this the, the need for like message discipline and all these sorts of things, and having to fight uh, uh, you know in a media environment, etc., etc., etc. So perhaps one of the things I'm trying to argue here actually is that we have to cultivate within ourselves the sensibilities of allowing things to, to get out of control and seem dangerous. Do you know what I mean? And then that you know don't just accept them where they go. You have to then build in, try to build up either before or during. Uh, you know, those spaces and forms of organisation which allows you to think about what's happening. It's gone out of control, right? We need to fucking understand this. We need to
1: get together and discuss it and work out what next to do. Do you know what I mean? I think what you're saying here is we need to learn to go with the flow.
2: <laughs> no, I think I think this is well, I do I do think there's something really interesting emerging in both of what you guys are saying, which is that if we're saying that convergence and effectively alliance building is like an actual project which psychologically like groups and individuals need to be in that headspace of thinking there are opportunities there are things happening we want that sort of convergence and alliance to happen we're pushing for convergence and alliance to happen so that it can, you know change can escalate or you know something can occur socially that requires risk and curiosity I think those are two things that are lacking Mm. in today's moment in the uk because i don't think people psychologically either on an individual level on a group level on a party level on a whatever collective level if those collectivities even exist are even able to like to to play with that as a concept let alone actually take it as part of a insert it into a political program i don't think people are able to be risked risky and curious which i think is a real problem
1: i thought we should hear a, a track with meditation in the title this is a 2022 track by more mother m o r mother brilliant uh, american artist uh, really uh, compelling contemporary artist and the track is called meditation
2: rag good night jazz fire Smoke, desire, praise. Drum, trump, crash, hands burnt cold,
1: new coming. Yeah, that point about people being afraid of change, that is really interesting, because I remember having a conversation in the late 90s with John Jordan, he was one of the key organisers of Reclaim the Streets about this issue. And At the time, uh, for various reasons, John and I were both really interested in Taoism. Taoism is like a Chinese philosophical tradition and it, it informs various things like meditative traditions and martial arts practice. It's not something you can really summarise philosophically because it's really a name for a tradition rather than a set of ideas but this but if there is a sort of core idea which is supposed to go back to the Taoist classics written thousands of years ago it's this idea that everything in nature is always changing and that change as such and changeability are phenomenon which should be embraced and it's the fear of change and the desire to sort of hold on to things or stop things changing which leads to all kinds of unhappiness i mean yeah daoism is a Especially at that time, it was being put to quite, and a bit later in the early 2000s, you know, it got put to really dodgy political uses. I mean, basically, it was a point made correctly, actually, by people like Zizek, that this philosophy which supposedly embraces change in all things is a really good, handy tool for, you know, move fast and break things, techno-capitalists. Tell everybody that they ought to embrace change, and if if they're not doing that, they're unenlightened. But Taoism has this really interesting. I mean, one of my favourites, my favourite line from the Tao Te Ching, the supposed Taoist classic, is "Without moving, you can know the whole world. Um, The more you travel, the less you know." And it's this idea of this ideal of like just not wanting to kind of roam around, not wanting to be a tourist, not wanting to. Not really even being that curious about the wider world, but engaging in some kind of contemplative practice as being preferable to that. But with all those caveats about not wanting to embrace some kind of capitalist ideology, like it is interesting that in those, some of those contemplative traditions, like Taoism and, and really early Buddhism, there's this idea that everything is always changing. And if you can't deal with the fact that everything is always changing, including you, who, who is going to keep getting older? For example, now no matter how hard you try not to, then you're just going to be like miserable. And that's also you could also say that a philosopher like Gilles Deleuze, um, in his work in the late 60s, in particular, is putting forward quite similar ideas in in his book, Difference and Repetition. But arguably, his his big philosophical statement, one of the key events he's interested in in human thought is the invention of calculus and part of the point about calculus is it enables you to calculate and measure velocity and velocity is all about not just speed but rates at which speed is changing so it's about measuring rates of change and there's this idea that that change in understanding changeability are sort of inherent to to matter and to social relations, and to selfhood is really important. There is this sort of counter idea which runs back to ancient philosophy, and it, but I think it's still, you know, it's still there a lot, in a lot of places today, this idea that somehow anything that's changeable is like unreal or inauthentic. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a colleague at the university once years ago, and she's just like a committed Freudian psychoanalysis person, and it was about the nature of gender and she said gender is real uh, and my and this was like against the sort of social constructionist position on gender and and I said yeah it's real just because it's real doesn't mean it's not changeable it doesn't mean it's not subject to historical variation and and political intervention you know personal intervention in in some ways and this idea that and this is an also an idea in a lot of you know, ancient philosophical traditions and that somehow movement itself you know, e- e- physical movement must be an illusion because, in some sense, it's mathematically impossible. And actually, anything that seems to be changing, the scale upon which you can see phenomena changing, must be somehow illusory because, at some fundamental level, like everything is part of one substance or everything is part of God or however you want to conceptualize it. And so, I think it is important. So, it is really interesting to think about this idea that we'll. There is some, there is some, there is the intuition that John and I, Jordan and I, had in the late nineties was that despite capitalist appropriations of it, there's some, there's some resonance between a, a radical conception of the possibility of social change, and the and a way of looking at both selfhood and the world, which is which is not afraid of change and which recognizes the, recognizes the changeability of things and the mobility of things, even at the level of molecules moving in matter as opposed to perspectives which are suspicious of that which think that stasis is by definition you know preferable or more authentic and and i think that does play out i mean this is certainly one of the messages of this is one of the ideas in in classical buddhism is the idea that well it, being attached to an idea of yourself of any fixed idea of yourself is just always going to lead to unhappiness and i think i think that does have a real political resonance massive it has a real political resonance. Well, you will you say why? Because I've gone on enough about. That.
2: Okay, well, well, I mean, I think there's there's a couple of things I'd like to pick up on before we get into that argument from what you're saying, Jeremy. Which is, I think, you know, and you you touched on this with the kind of accelerationist <laughs> argument around tech or whatever. But it's it's important to note who's deploying these sorts of arguments at and at yeah. which political moment, right? And how those arguments interact with agency. Because there's there is on some level, you know that that quote of like what is it the 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 only constant is change or whatever like these are big like philosophical points which are really important and of which have like really important learnings and catchments to you know the self and the individual at times of like tumult tumult whether internal or external. But I think the problem that we have here, and this kind of, this harks back to what we were talking about earlier, is that if you're experiencing this kind of rapid external change, and effectively somebody's saying to you, or that this argument is being deployed of like, well, there is nothing to do about you, there's nothing to do here, like the only way that you will find satisfaction is by sitting back and accepting if that change is actually, you know, your experience of life over the last 15 years, you know, arguably, as we've had here in the UK, is that things are getting worse in a material sense, in a relational sense, in a you know workplace sense, in a, you know, high street sense, if every other week, you know, crudely, a- another shop that you used to go to is like shutting down, then it becomes a question of like, well, who does that argument serve? Because from a Buddhist principle perspective, like, like I agree, I think, I think in terms of a mental health, you know, uh, argument, it's it's really important that that one is able to 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 understand from a sto you know on a, on a stoic level, like what you can change and what you can't change. But that comes up against that butts up against an argument about. How change happens, and how you believe social change happens, and what is the role of—I don't even want to say activists, really, but like activism and and mobilizing just for that activity kind of or just activity. activity, exactly, exactly, activity. So, so that's the issue there, and I'm not sure, like, how we can like res- resolve that, and that maybe you know, and maybe that's why the fr- the framing of stillness and movement is actually quite is actually quite useful, because there are moments where, you know, post a big political defeat, we're like just trying to do the same shit again, for the purpose of it being, you know, and speaking back to what you were talking about, your identity, like you identify as someone who goes out and organize demonstrations and does this, because that is who you are. And if you, if you hold, if you are unable to experience yourself and your humanity, in a like set of understandings of self that are away from that and that causes a problem for you like when this is this, an, uh, as you said, a, mo- a you know a social moment, a, a political moment where there's an ebb where actually maybe it's a better time for reflection. But if you do not have the tools, either as an individual, who has a meditative practice, or as a collective, or as a group of people, or who identify in a certain way, then you are unable to. You become unable to gather your energy and resources by having or accepting that movement of stillness.
0: I think there are like um, there are resources within Deleuze uh, to, to to think about that more than what was just saying, particularly when. Um, Deleuze starts writing with Felix Guattari uh, in the early, um, is it in the early 70s, I think it is? Late 60s. Late Late 60s, Anti-Oedipus. And basically, their two main books together are Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus. And uh, in Anti-Oedipus, the emphasis is, is much more on you know, it's almost like an accelerationist thing—not technological accelerationism—but you know, the emphasis is like to 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 to, to embrace change or push change because yeah, change is good, and 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 stasis is always negatively marked. Always negative, you know. And in in a way, this is a post sixty eight book, so it's like, what do you do with the insight that the state of things is actually change and not stasis? You know, what do you do with that? You can just recognize it and say, well, that's nice, <laughs> or you can try to think out what politically to do with it. And their initial thing was. Yeah, change is change. Let's destroy, etc. Like, and then by a thousand plateaus, they're much, much more cautious. You know, and the, in the last chapter, or the last plateau, I suppose I'd have to say, you know, they have this thing about, you know, yeah, we have to experiment quite cautiously, perhaps with change or deterritorialising or destratification, as they as they would put that. And in fact, you, don't, you should always have a little bit of um, uh, territory to, to retreat back to. A little plot of land to retreat back to. I when you go off and do an experimentation, try to change something, you should have somewhere to come back to, unless you lose yourself. I mean, I, I think in its at particular points, they're thinking about these moments of, change, of sudden change being being followed by you know outbreaks of drug addiction and these sorts of things, but also you know just the danger of like uh, uh, of individual madness or just the, the, the complete breakdown of coherence.
2: That sounds like an argument for the, in a literal and a metaphorical sense, the need for some sort of grounding, which basically almost lends itself to the argument that not all conserving of something or conserving as energy is necessarily conservative, is the argument that I would make.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I think it lends this this thing to this, like, you know, um, moments of like, um, moments of madness, moments of excess, as I put it before, and then like the more. These moments of of of, of slowing down, etc. In fact, I think where I got the phrase "moments of excess" from, or where me and my colleagues got the uh, in the free association got the moments of excess thing, is from a an interview I think Ghedari and Deleuze do with some Maoist group, and and they're sort of saying, look, these these moments where everything goes off, these moments of excess, or just a faith that things will turn out or end all right at the end. They're they're basically not enough to save us, and what you need is. You need these moments where things go off, these moments of excess where like the previous sensibility of this society in which, you know, the previous things that you could, the society could make sense of, or even just sense perhaps, as in like recognise, that gets exceeded. But then you also need analytical war machines, but like just basically spaces of analysis, right? So there's almost like a rhythm, do you know what I mean, where you have these explosions, but then you have to have this prepared ground to step back to, to, to slow down and an- analyse.
2: I was gonna say, I'm not sure, just thinking, you know, while Kia was speaking there, I'm not sure that slowing down is the same as stillness. I think there is stillness is a much kind of stronger position conceptually. And I think there is, you know, different different kinds of stillness that we can talk about there, because stillness is related to, you know, the the pejoratives of of stasis, effectively. Like I think I think we're saying that for something to be ground to a halt is very different to the kind of stillness that is needed that uh, from which comes creativity and reflection and big ideas yeah. right
1: yes say more about that yeah <laughs> uh,
2: well well I, I i mean i'm just thinking about it from a philosophical f- sense and also like parallels to those those buddhist principles as i think you know like if people feel like you're in a political ebb, and you've been forced to slow down, and you're trying to conserve energy. That's it's, it's, mm. it. It seems like quite a different perspective to actively being still. Whether that's to do with observing yourself, or observing the movement, or observing history, and that kind of like Buddhist presence of like there is nothing. This idea of there is nothing to do here. So you know the idea that meditation, at its essence, is not about you know trying to stop your brain working it's about the absence of and that's a very difficult thing to 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 be able to get that perspective politically when when you're in a moment
0: is a distinction Is a distinction between um choosing or perhaps cultivating stillness to having stasis imposed on you is that the distinction you're making
2: i'm basically saying i don't think it's stillness Mm-hmm. if it's not the, what we're trying to say the, the stillness that i'm envisaging is not something that can be imposed on you i think that's stasis or that's uh yeah. that that's that kind of stuckness that we're talking about when and it, and it, and that has some kind of claustrophobia to it or some kind of like being put you know a vi, uh, 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 an effect of being forced indoors or forced inside or pushed into a box. it's unfreedom.
1: It's the the most basic form of unfreedom. It's have your room for movement constrained and constricted, whether it's by borders or prison walls.
2: Completely. Completely, which is very different to whether collectively or as an individual, like coming to a movement, coming to stillness, because from that stillness, can come like it's it's like what we were talking about with boredom before like the i want the right to be bored like you want the right for stillness you want the right to be able to stop and have the space and the time for that kind of like deep reflection from which comes big big ideas and creativity and new relationships you know that's kind of like it's the metaphor there would be about a seed like a seed is still until Its force is instigated. And when its force is instigated, it can then grow like rapidly into this huge, incredible, amazing like tree or whatever. But it it has this ability within it to conserve energy in a way that is still until the right conditions are there for it to explode, which is not the same as, you know, like squashing a seed or like setting it on fire to make it stop germinating, you know.
0: Can I um, push that point on a little bit then? Because you, because I can, I, I totally agree with that. It's a great point. And but like there, there have been conceptions of revolution, which is about pulling on the brake. So let me just explain that. That the, it, during the early 20th century, there was um, the, the idea of a train on a train track. You know, a sort of unmovable, being dragged along by the by the forces of history, was like a a metaphor that was reached for quite a lot in in in, in terms of like rev a metaphor for revolution, basically. And then Walter Benjamin starts arguing that, in fact, no, the revolution, perhaps, is getting on the train, this runaway, out-of-control train, and pulling on the, the train, you know what I mean? To, to pull on the brake, I mean to say. Um, so it's this idea that perhaps we need to, yeah, that there, there are these runaway processes of change, and we need to work out how to stop them going, basically, in order to create the space to do something else. And you could, you could make an argument that, one of the contemporary iterations of that would be something like when people talk about degrowth economics, and in fact, people sort of sort of talk about a steady state economy. I don't actually like the steady state thing, but that would be much more. The way I would interpret it, degrowth is that not that we don't want change, right? Not that we want something where things don't change at all, right? You want dynamism, but like you have to have that within recognition of of our, that we actually exist. Within an environment with with other animals, etc., and there are sort of like these limits that to that that get exceeded by this sort of runaway change. And the runaway change is just growth for its own sake, you know, the increase in economic activity for its own sake. And so the degrowth thing would be, yeah, you can't have you can't have economic activity for its own sake, you know. There are limits that economic activity takes place in. Therefore, you have to have that has to be guided in some sort of way. And the way you have to guide that is to have a democratic economy, etc.
2: I think the the 20th century argument I mean there's a strong uh, you know that it, it it's it's definitely in many cases a conservative like anti-progress you know with a capital p like argument of like there's too much social change occurring and in a sense it's about conserving which I think is is quite different to you know what it looks like from the 21st century when you're actually saying you're trying I think it's a very difficult argument to make the the one that you you've, you've just alluded to, uh, Kia, that, that there is a, there is a future that is dynamic outside capitalism. I think that is the argument is you're wanting to say there is a possibility for like innovation. There's a possibility for like coexisting with nature's rhythms. There's, There's a possibility for like coexisting with, you know, animals in a different way as part of nature. That is kind of dynamic and effervescent and like fun and full of joy and productive as well. You know, is a productive economy outside capitalism. And I think it's really difficult for people to envisage that, like really difficult.
1: Yeah, I think it, I think that's true. Yeah, that's true. But I think it is worth reiterating that it's not even it's not only Benjamin. I mean, the the observe the argument that what's wrong with capitalism is it is it transforms everything without anybody being in control of the process consciously is is in the Communist Manifesto. And it's and they're drawing on that was one of the arguments made by socialists in the early nineteenth century, and I think. It, I think it, you know, it is a quite a compelling argument. I think it still resonates with a lot of contemporary political debates. That, um, the, the le- what you need to do from a left perspective is put forward the view that the altern- that the choice is not only one between uncontrolled change and no change, but that there is always a third option, which is change over w- in which people have a democratic stake. I think it's a real problem with the way in this country, like we've dealt with debates over immigration on the left, is that we haven't really dealt with the fact that there's a big there are constituencies who are who are now are really hostile to immigration, but the thing they're primarily hostile to, I think, is the sense that they don't have any that it involves a, a change in the social composition of their communities that they don't have any say over. It's not that they're necessarily hostile to the idea of Welcoming people who are different from them—it's the fact that they they might want to be involved in actively welcoming them, rather than just people, rather than things just happening that nobody's consulted them about. And I Definitely,
2: think, which is completely legitimate, completely legitimate. And the left is really shit at this. The left, you're right, is really. Well,
1: shit we've accepted shit. a situation where it's either the conservatives or the liberal position. The liberal perspective is. You know, this is just liber- you know just basically change is good like accept it welcome it you know it's not really any of your business who your neighbours are anyway because you're a liberal who respects private property and individual rights and i think and we've accepted that as the alternative understandably the alternative to like a conservative argument on immigration which is oh it should be stopped to preserve the authenticity of the national community whatever which is also which is even more wrong from our point of view and i think you know my, it's also based you know,
2: I, on like no historical reality whatsoever. Yeah, no,
1: of course, yeah, it's total, <laughs> it's total nonsense. Of course, like if that, if those are the only choices available, but I mean, this is a whole other argument. I think it, that's it's been really crucial to the way in which neoliberalism has secured consent, especially from urban populations, the past few decades, is to basically tell people put create engineer a situation where either. Either you accept neoliberal globalization and its massive flows of, uh, and its you know flows of and form its particular forms of migrancy, or you just oppose migrancy altogether in ways which is ethically and even aesthetically abhorrent to us for really good reasons. And I think we have we've never re- we haven't really put forward an argument that okay, look, we're one of the richest countries in the world especially those of us living in towns and cities like we 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 like having people from all around the world like we need to sort of get together as as a community collectively work out how we make that happen in a way which benefits everybody which doesn't frighten people we haven't done that at all and it's one reason i think it's that i would say that is the primary reason actually why the left is so marginalized over the past few decades because we haven't been able to address that question and that is a question about well how do you have change in a way which People feel, feel like they have a stake in it. People feel like they have some control over it. And that is the basic question of democracy. The basic question of democracy is how do you enable collective people to feel a sense of collective agency? And agency is about being able to change things and, and to decide what doesn't change. And, and instead, we end up in this situation where we're either we're having change imposed upon us from the outside um or we're just saying no or we're just being we're just adopting a position of conservatism and i think that that, that can never be an appropriate response from a socialist perspective
2: but also it like it this this brings us to like you know what i would call the can we just stop sentiment like it's understandable that in britain today there's people who are seeing the world around them like change so rapidly in in a myriad of different like di- in, in negative ways and where like you said they are not in control they don't feel like they have any agency and their own they feel like the best their best possible response is basically you know, putting their hands up in a kind of like defensive bodily position and saying, can we just stop? Can we just have one month? Can we just have one year where things are not getting worse? Because what happens is that it's almost like collectively, everyone's on a, not everyone, of course, but as a collectivity, people are, have been pushed so far down the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that you're unable to think about social change, you're unable to think about movement, you're unable to see your kind of role as some kind of actor because all your basic needs have been taken away from you. If you can't pay or if you're anxious about what your electricity and gas bill is going to be this winter, you don't want to think about that stuff at all. You'd be like, can people stop the migrants? Can people stop climate change? Can people stop all of the things, all of these things that politically are not necessarily on the same side You know, traditionally, just can people stop stuff so that I just can have a bit of a rest so I can just gather my thoughts as I feel like what's happening en masse, you know?
0: I suppose, like, one of the other other big problems for the left is not just that, yeah, this effect of, like, you'd be getting yourself worn down and overwhelmed by this relentless drip 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 of change or the you know or even perhaps not drip 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 it's this not a crisis
2: tides tides washing uh, tides, over yeah, you that's constantly a much, that's a much
0: much better that's a much better analogy yeah but um but but also that change sometimes comes in like horrendous big spasms. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Like a, like a crisis of some sort or a war, this sort of stuff, or a riot. You know, the, a riot kicks off. You know, the, I'm thinking of the 2011 riots, and like one of the responses that tends to come out in one of those like spasms of 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 change or violence or whatever they are is that um, you know the response tends to, that comes out from the media etc. is like to to prohibit thinking. Do you know what I mean? It's like in the 2011 uh, uh, riots, it was, you know, um, what's his name? Cameron. (laughs) Oh, thank God he's disappeared from my head. Great. Fuck (laughs) off. (laughs) That's been a history for you, mate. Um, You know, he said like, you know, uh, we, we, uh, uh, you know, uh, we, we explain too much and condemn too little. And it's like, you know, thinking about it, we're like, why, what's going on? Why has this thing happened? I think any nuance is like basically prohibited. And like, you you know, what what happens is that you're supposed to build yourself up into, you know, this sort of, um, I suppose it's like the, the, the affect of fear and panic, isn't it? Like panic where you can't think, basically, they, you know, there's a conscious I mean, mobilization. Shock. Like Nadia
1: wanted to yeah, talk about
0: shock. shock. It's also, it's shock, isn't it? Yeah, it's that affect of shock. Yeah, basically. And like, so what's the shock absorbers, basically? How do we put some shock absorbers in there which say, because what you need to do in that situation, well, I suppose there's a couple of things to do. One is to try to prevent this mobilization of shock, to to, to prevent it being, you know, producing a new spasm of violence. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, Nine, 11 eleven—it shocks America, and you get this, these, well, I don't know, continuing spasms of violence all over the world, etc. So you have to, we have to move. To, you know, we have to move to try to prevent that happening. But you also need to, like, basically defend the space for thinking and adding nuance and analyzing and.
2: Totally. And I think that's actually the the introduction of the concept of a spasm there is actually a really useful, useful one, because that again, brings us back to talking about what a useful form of stillness is. And it's impossible. Like if you are still and you are spasming, then that is not stillness. That is anxiety. That is like high adrenaline. That is the sort of energy that is going to make you get up and do something rather than like you're saying, take a moment to analyze or have some kind of nuance and if you know the forces uh that the dominant forces hegemonic forces in society like government are going right you know or, or or whatever mainstream media or whatever like not wanting to sound like a conspiracy conspiracy theorist now i like I feel like i can't say mainstream media without worrying about that's coming across <laughs> yeah, us but yeah, yeah. but you know you know what i mean like if you if you're at a moment like those you know good examples like what's just what's happening at this time of recording with you know Israel Palestine or with 9-11 or with whatever all of these big moments where people are you're in such shock you know because because this this spasm has occurred and it's and it's and it's uh it's re- reverberating into your body and then that space is filled with like a very simplistic discourse it becomes difficult to to critique that because you yourself are going through the shock of like the horrors of war or the horrors of attack or like of you know c- civilian deaths or whatever and people lap up all sorts of rhetoric not because they're stupid but because they don't have the space you know for um for kind of an alternative construction and going back to our original point like if there is no space like predetermined space for like alternative cultural production then where are you going to get the alternative viewpoint from
1: yeah i think that's absolutely right and it's i mean it's a cliche it's probably a cliche on the show that you know, capitalism works to deliberately to engineer that feeling of like being so pulverized by change that you actually can't act. I mean, you know, this is partly Naomi Klein's argument in the Shock Doctrine, and it's but it's an observation that people have been making for a long time. And you know, it speaks to what I've said loads of times that we're still living in a historical period when sort of whether consciously or unconsciously you know, capitalism and its agents and elite has learned the lessons of the post-war period when what happened when you made people too safe and secure for a whole generation is that you you gave them all sorts of ideas about what might be possible and that was part of the precondition for those the radicalism of the 70s and um so i think that is all really illuminating because i mean the, the problem we've got now this comes back to the stuff we were talking about at the start of the show is that we've if what we need to re, to get out of this condition of stuckness is is forms of democratic solidarity and, and solidaristic democracy then the problem the immediate problem we've got is this technocratic managerial political class who really the only thing they're afraid the one thing they're most afraid of because it would it would remove them from their position of privilege is anything like meaningful democracy so we've got all these democratic desires very potently manifest in the culture whether it's people voting for brexit because they think it will take back control or whether it's people just spending loads of time on social media that gives them a kind of you know casual sense of participation and creativity or whether it's people being on the left and getting involved in socialist movements of various kinds like it, and they're all being constantly pushed back and shut down and attacked by the by a very specific group, I think, really, who of people, the, this professional political class, and the kind of wide, this wider managerial class, because their whole their whole raison d'être through the period of neoliberalism has been to prevent any any form of meaningful democracy re-emerging after the crisis of the seventies, and that's still the the basic contest we engaged in is one between democracy and its opponents. And I think democracy, like in an expansive sense, is the only possible solution. We talked a bit on this show about contemplative practice. one of the most important traditions of contemplative practice is Zen the Zen concept of beginner's mind in some as a thing you should always try to cultivate is sort of about cultivating a sense of openness to the world and its possibilities in a way that we've talked We've been talking about on the show. A really interesting album by American musician Tony Scott from 1965 is called "Music for Zen Meditation," and this track is called "Zazen." Zazen is just the Japanese name for the Zen practice of sitting meditation with an with as much as possible an empty and open mind. <laughs> I also think, like at a personal level, I was thinking about how a lot of the stuff we've been talking about it relates to things we've talked about on the show and when we did that session at the World Transformed in Liverpool last year, that about what it means to sort of think about yourself as a subject in history, as a as an agent of history, but a product of history. I mean, in a way for me this is that is like the socialist version of the more the travel you less you know that you without moving you can know the whole world the sort of socialist iteration of that is the idea that well, you have to you have to accept the both accept the extent to which you are you and your condition are all, are products of social forces like you're not a kind of individual free agent however much you would like to be and that the forms of agency and action you can engage in are about are about always moving within a network of forces within which you can't really control the outcomes uh, to a large extent and i sort of think you know the ga- i think the you know the reason i'm really interested in contemplative practice in those traditions like buddhism is cuz i sort of think like on the one hand those traditions they're very they often they usually take these very anti-political manifestations but there is something about the kind of condition of 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 consciousness they're trying to cultivate, which is really useful to someone who is trying to think of themselves in these like completely non-individualistic terms, as a sort of you know, non-agent agent in the world, as someone who's trying to understand their their absolute relatedness to everything else and not just be made miserable and disempowered and, and static because of it. I think there's something really useful there if you can kind of marry up those techniques of contemplative practice and that kind of attitude of openness to both openness to change and willingness to embrace stillness at certain times with a, a historical consciousness and a belief in the possibility of politics as you know, sometimes producing positive outcomes. I think that is all really powerful. Yeah. I mean.
0: Perhaps the other thing, the other lesson to draw from that is it takes us back to where we started saying, look, there are ebbs and flows. There are ebbs and flows in in the movement of the left. You know, those of us like on this podcast, who are a little bit older and who have lived through various ebbs and flows in the past can say, you know, you know, this is what it feels like to be in an ebb. Like the, the way yeah, you may be fe- think feeling and thinking at the moment, uh, you know uh, this moment of stuckness. You know you're not always going to feel like that. And in fact, if you look around, I think we started the the show on this, you know, on this sort of note. If you look around, you can sort of see all of the conditions for moving into place for 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 a new wave uh, to to come along when there's a political opening. You know, in a way, there's all of this sort of this stuff building up on, on what has been done. All political uh, opportunities for expressing this, the, the, you know, the, these forms and these desires and needs have been blocked off. That's what Starmerism is. That is its project in toto, right? And we know that's an incredibly brittle situation. You know, it feel we feel stuck now, but like you may not always feel stuck. You're not always going to feel this way. Things will open up and you have to you have to act now in the preparation in that sort of historic knowledge that that, 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 that new opening is not only possible, but like it will come along.
2: Yeah no I, I and i think you know i think that's 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 all like wise words from you guys i think um there's also maybe a step before that 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 is important to consider which is is, is which is brings us back to you know something that we've talked about on this show on and on other episodes uh, quite a bit which is that kind of linking back to your point about openness jeremy of Consciousness raising and why it's it's important, like it's not so much, I think, necessarily to to say, okay everyone, you know, you've got together your energy because the moment will come. But it's also about like the importance of like curiosity and openness and a kind of self-awareness. Of ourselves as individuals and as you know, collectives, and as groups, and as you know, what what however different configurations that people live within um, at this moment in time, and understanding the importance of having, you know, self-compassion and compassion to others, and not getting tied up in and making enemies with those people who will you will need to build alliances with perhaps very soon. And it just feels like like that's an important, you know, message to put out is that it's not just that it feels like people are fighting themselves in this kind of state of kind of anxiety or, you know, Um, yeah collective anxiety and fear but they're also like fighting their political neighbors and there's you know there's a lot of bad vibes out there and i think we need to be wise to that um and you know pick pick our battles and pick our enemies uh, and not waste our energy at this at this point in time this is (laughs)